Welcome to a special one-off podcast from the JLL Value and Risk Advisory Team. I'm your host, Emily Chadwick, Head of ESG and Risk, and today we hopefully have a really enlightening discussion in store for you. Joining me is Josh Askew, a Director in JLL's Value Advisory Team and a fellow sustainability advocate. Together, we'll delve into his recent academic research for the University of Cambridge, which focuses on how investors are pricing transition risk in the real estate sector. Josh, so great you can join me all the way from Dubai today. Hi. Yes, hi there. Thanks very much. Thanks. Can you give our listeners an overview of what you wanted to find out with this research? What was the research about and what kind of markets were you looking at? Okay, so in carrying out this this research for the Master's Studies in Sustainability Leadership in the Built Environment, I looked at the debates around valuation and a clear theme emerged, which was that there are many sustainability advocates who lay blame at the door of valuers for not reflecting sustainability upsides and downsides enough in their valuations. And there are those in the academic literature and practitioners who defend values as a counter argument and have said, well, the evidence that exists isn't strong enough to convince valuers to adjust their valuations and explicitly reflect sustainability in their valuations. Because most of the research that's being done in that space is statistical research and hedonic models, which indicates that there could be correlation between sustainability factors and higher or low values, depending on the situation. But the correlation does not imply causation. So the evidence is not strong enough. So the question was then, what evidence would be strong enough for valuers to start explicitly reflecting sustainability adjustments? And it became obvious from the reading that directly approaching sophisticated investors across EMEA, so Europe, Middle East, and Africa, and finding out what adjustments they are currently making to their purchases and their modeling for the bids that they're making in the market, that would be the sort of research which could be called strong research and would convince valuers to perhaps reflect sustainability factors more in their own modeling. So essentially, the survey, the online survey which I created, had over 70 responses And it was focused on, across EMEA, approaching the most sophisticated investors, REITs, funds, investment and asset managers. And the territories covered were Europe, the UK and Ireland, 49% of the respondents, Africa, 28%, the Middle East, 15%, and then 13% of the respondent organizations described themselves as, as global organizations. And 72% of the responses were from REITs, funds, investment, and asset managers. So the core, most sophisticated investors across those markets. Really fascinating. And as you say, it's it's a topic that's very relevant right now. It's something that we're getting asked about all the time. You know, to what extent can or should sustainability be reflected in what valuers are doing day to day? And the evidence that we have, we might have these kind of data-driven studies, as you said. We now do have some examples of real transactions where there's been something in the due diligence or when it gets to investment committee that's really impacted the liquidity or the pricing of the asset that we're able to track on real transactions. But obviously, as a valuer, you're trying to reflect what a market player would do in this situation for this particular asset. 
So any additional help that we can get to support the extent to which sustainability should be incorporated, I think is really helpful. Yeah, absolutely. What also makes the research interesting and useful is they're quite senior and the majority of those who responded had a holding period of five to 10 years on their, you know, for their real estate assets, which means that they're medium to longer term investors. And those are the investors that really need to take sustainability as a factor into consideration in their forward models and their exit pricing, et cetera, so that they need to plan this in their business plans for these assets. So. For sure. Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to dig into the survey itself a little bit and investigate your findings. So the, the first section of the survey looks at how investors are underwriting green premium for highly performing buildings. And it stood out to me that 39% of the investors you surveyed said that they had underwritten green premium on buildings already. But what was also interesting was the different ways that they had chosen to do that. Some were looking at the yield, but that wasn't the case for everyone. Isn't that right? Yeah, that's right. So 39% responded that yes, they, they are making adjustments to their pricing models, so their bid models when they buy assets. And of those 39%, there was a split amongst those 39% as to how they adjust their models or how they adjust their pricing. So some selected the discount rate or a lower IRR, internal rate of return. For those that selected discount rate, there was a split where 45% suggested that they would lower their discount rate by 50 basis points, and 33% suggested that they would lower what well, they had lowered their discount rates in these bids by 25 basis points for buildings with strong green certificates. Then there were those that suggested they had made adjustments to the exit yield or the cap rate, and the strongest range or the strongest adjustment there, the most common adjustment was 40% suggested, the majority suggested that they had made an adjustment of minus 50 basis points in their purchase modeling and their purchase decisions for green certified buildings. Then some suggested lower capital expenditure, the so lower capex across their DCF models. The majority suggested that they had made 10% reductions in capex over the, the holding period on the investment horizon in their models. And then finally, more for the UK island market, initial yield adjustments, those that selected initial yield as the way they would make an adjustment on purchase or you know, the purchase decision, 33% of them reduced their initial yields by 1 to 24 basis points and 33% by 50 basis points. So of those that adjusted their modeling, that 39%, they're are quite strong adjustments being reflected for green certified buildings. But I think we already expected that that would be the case with green certified buildings, but it certainly is a just an acknowledgement this is already happening in the market and that these sophisticated investors are already making these, these explicit adjustments in their modeling. And it would be really interesting actually to track this over time. So if we ask the same question next year or in two or three years, to see how those numbers change, both in terms of the percentage of, of investors who are making some kind of adjustment and then the way that that's coming through or the magnitude to which that's coming through and discount rates and yields. I think that would be really interesting. And something we've discussed previously is to what extent does this help valuers? So as you say, this is a signal from the market that 39% of them are already looking at some kind of underwriting for green premier, but the results are quite varied in terms of how they're doing that. 
What's your interpretation? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I conducted interviews with three experts after I had the survey results and their interpretations, not necessarily my interpretation, but their interpretation was that this is going to become far more common and the sophisticated investors sort of lead the pack. And what the sophisticated investors like the REITs and the funds are doing now, all investors in real estate will be doing very soon or you know in the future. So that's the, the first thing to say. And then the second thing is that yes, we can see a direction of travel in terms of the research results, but I still think that on an asset by asset basis, the valuer needs to make a decision as to how to reflect these premier. So it really will depend on the approach being used, the model, the type of asset as to you know which adjustment is most appropriate. But the the strong message here is that sophisticated investors in the market are already doing this. So valuers should be doing the same thing. Something you, you mentioned previously was the nature of the type of investor that you were speaking to. Obviously, very sophisticated, the REITs and the funds, investment and asset managers with long holding periods on average. Yeah. And I suppose there's also going to be a section of the market that aren't thinking about this in the same way, thinking about it in a completely different way, perhaps haven't started incorporating this into what they're doing yet on on their bidding so from a value perspective i suppose it's really investigating who would the typical investor be for this asset and is there evidence of them making adjustments if so of what magnitude and how and and what should we be reflecting as as the value on this asset particularly i mean from a green premium side yeah i think that actually the results of the research are far more interesting on the, the transition risk side of the equation. I think that the, the results are more startling there, which show that, we'll come onto this, I'm sure, but which show that there's a lot more disquiet, worry, anxiety around exit values and what assets that have no mitigations could actually be worth. So no uh, net zero or part, net zero pathway mitigations and therefore expose themselves to transition risk. Transition risk being the risk that legislation and market demand is going to require buildings to, to have a, a very strong pathway or achieve some sort of net zero or close to net zero certification. And I think that the, the results there are far more interesting actually than the green certified building results. I think that the green certified building results I think most valuers are already aware of this, and there is an argument to say that the yield bids or the, the bids for green certified buildings, it, it's already fairly reflected in, the, in, in those prime yields. And most strongly green certified buildings already would tend to be the, the prime assets. Um, so what we was trying to do here is, yes, these, these assets are going to be the prime assets. They're going to be built in the CBD or a very prime location. They tend to be the newer assets. But if you had to split out the thinking of the purchaser, what element of that is a green certified building premium? And I, th I think the research manages to do that. But as you said, it's it's not the entire market. It's a direction of travel. So we're talking about 39% at the moment. But as I stated before, I think, and I think Emily probably agree with me that over time, the rest of the market will start to act in the same way as this becomes more of a priority. Absolutely. And I think You'd be silly even as a shorter term investor if your exit strategy is to sell to one of these types of investors 
to not be considering it today because your exit pricing will be absolutely determined by what that type of investor is willing to pay. And I think that understanding is starting to permeate through the less enlightened corners of the market when it comes to sustainability, for sure. Yeah. What was interesting is I asked a series of questions about what it is that is motivating these premier or discounts, so premier for green certified buildings, discounts for transition risk. And on the green certified building side of the equation, 18% of respondents suggested that well, they, they elected positive investor sentiment for ESG certified assets. And then there was a split, an equal split between 16% indicated that they would anticipate improved occupier demand for these buildings. That's why they they paid a premium and 16% lower transition risks. In other words, less likely they'd have to spend CapEx in the future on green certified buildings. So positive investor sentiments, i.e. being able to resell the asset, probably attract tenants. These are, are, are strong motivators and not having to spend as much CapEx on the assets in the future for green certified buildings. So more resilient assets. Sure. It was interesting what you mentioned just now about what's baked into Prime already. We did an, an interesting project with a transition fund who were looking to create a product for investors where they were going to deliver impact above and beyond the minimum expectations of the market. So kind of what we had to do there is identify what was already rolled into Prime or expectations of Prime. Yes. Then how you could go above and beyond that. And what was really interesting was that that level differed quite a lot over, you know, even a relatively small geography within Europe. But if you took three countries within Europe, that definition of what expectations of sustainability are already in the prime yield varies. And then what you have to do to be, you know, potentially get a premium on top of that, or in this case, you know, it was more from a perspective of, create impact in the market above and beyond typical best in class that really came through and that was really interesting. Maybe because you've touched on it just now, we should move on to that transition risk side. One of the things that stood out to me was that the magnitude of the adjustments that were being made on the transition risk side were on average larger than on the on the premium side. So it feels like we're, we're quite risk averse to downside transition risk compared to upside premiums. Uh, absolutely, I agree. <clears throat> I think it's much more of an unknown. And some of the, the open text questions around transition risks, the, the results, the comments were all around having a lack of faith in the current CapEx models for getting assets to a level where they wouldn't be subject to transition risks. So getting them to net zero or near net zero or developing a pathway, the cost of that. I think that speaking to the experts after the, the survey, it was a question of, well, what exactly do you mean by net zero and how quickly do we have to get there? And that could change depending on the territory. So, I mean, net zero could be operational net zero. It could be embodied net zero. It could be whole life carbon net zero for the assets. So this could be a movable feast, which changes over time, which somehow explains why I think that there's more anxiety around this amongst investors. So. If we look at the, the responses, those that suggested a higher discount rate. So when we say a higher discount rate, that's lowering the value of the asset that they're bidding on. A higher discount rate, 39% suggested they would move out the discount rate by 50 basis points. 26% 
suggested they would move out their discount rate by 75 basis points. And those are huge movements in discount rates. They have a massive impact on value. Yeah. For those that suggested exit yields, 42% suggested plus 50 basis points on the exit yield. Again, you know, when you're you're calculating terminal value and you move your exit yield out by 50 basis points on the, the final year's net operating income, and then it's discounted, that's in most DCFs, that accounts for between 30 to 45% of the value of the asset. So those are huge movements. In terms of higher initial yields, 37% selected plus 50 basis points. So those are much more startling results than the, the Green Certified Building Premier indicates anxiety and fear around the impact that transition risks could have on assets. And a lack of certainty, as you say, as to what level we need to get to and how quickly as well. So maybe more caution in general. Agreed. One of the other questions you had on this point were the top transition risks that are being reflected in general. So kind of digging down into how transition risk is being reflected in general by these investors. And the top three or amongst the top three were, were resale risk or exit pricing, vacancy levels and rental losses, which was quite comforting to me actually, because that's exactly the approach we've taken on some uh, kind of scenario testing projects that we've run with investors recently, where we've looked at potential decarbonization strategies versus a kind of do nothing scenario, and then looked at what the potential impact of value could be for, for taking those steps or for, for not choosing to decarbonize the asset. And those are the three elements that we've sort of been playing with. So the exit pricing, the vacancy and, and the rent. So that was encouraging to see that our take on what the market should be doing seems to be the emerging trend that's come through. Yeah. I mean, if you think about that, so 18% responded on selected resale risk, 17% selected rental income losses, 18% selected higher vacancy losses. If you think about what that really means is there's a lot of anxiety around income returns and future capital values, which is pretty much the entire together, the entire value of the asset. So there's a lot of worry there. They, well, with these assets, we're not sure we're going to be able to continue to get decent income returns and distributions for the REITs on these assets. And then we've got a problem. We think we've probably got a problem if we try and sell them. Well, that's pretty massive. I mean, that's the that's the sort of entire investment thesis is it's all about distributions and income return and then capital appreciation. So <laughs> that's um Yeah, that's the whole picture. Basically saying, you know, the business model here is 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 very questionable on these um these assets that haven't been decarbonized where there's no mitigation of these risks. Mm. You mentioned earlier that getting certainty on CapEx was obviously a challenge and that might be feeding into sort of this anxiety on, on the downside. And that really chimed with me. I mean, we've seen massive discrepancies in the level of costs that are being assumed um, across the market. We've also seen the difference between a benchmark cost and the reality when you get down to the nitty gritty at asset level, that the details of the building, how it's been put together, how recently certain parts of the building or the, the machinery have been replaced. And it's not necessarily something that you can determine by looking at the age of the building. There aren't really very good 
proxies that lead you to a reliable finger in the air approach to what the capex should be. And that's a massive challenge for the market who are then basically having to pay for lots of really detailed cost studies at asset level, but also for for valuers who might be under pressure to, to reflect capex, but without really reliable data on how big that capex should be, that how big that liability could be from a capital expenditure point of view. And also what element of that could be wrapped into normal refurbishment or maintenance costs might be charged back to the tenants through plan preventative maintenance programs, for example, via a service charge. So it is really tricky, I think, this point on CapEx. But I think, did you look at also the ways that investors are dealing with a lack of detailed CapEx? So the survey responses split essentially into two groups, those that tried to reflect transition risks in higher capital expenditure. And that varied quite widely. Some tried to estimate what retrofitting costs would be, what lighting in HVAC costs would be, advanced metering, what infrastructure replacement costs would be, etc. And then you had respondents who accepted that we can't really do that and just tried to reflect this, I would say, most strongly in the, in the discount rate or the exit yield, which is a bit of a finger in the air approach. But... You can see from the magnitude of the responses on those two metrics, on discount rate and exit yield, that the majority are at least 50 basis points, moving them out by at least 50 basis points. So they are risk averse and they're saying, well, we're not sure on the capex, so we're going to move the discount rate out quite significantly or even more significantly move the the exit yield out by at least 50 basis points, which, as I said, is has a massive impact on value. I think that the implications for valuers, which the research is actually focused on on what values ought to do, I think the implication is that these transition risks are not to be underestimated. And the risk to valuers, I think, is that if they don't start reflecting on the the poorer assets, the assets that have had no mitigations, no decarbonization, if they don't start reflecting this in their modeling, they could be in a position when the market suddenly changes and you know, it starts to very strongly reflect these transition risks in their, their bids where values have overvalued assets uh, and haven't taken this as seriously as they could have. Like, I think that, that is, is something that needs to be thought about. Yeah, it definitely needs to be thought about, as you say. I mean, it's it could be a big shock to the market if these things aren't being considered in line with what is happening. Yeah. Then it's going to be a much bigger drop. I know that ULI have referred to that as the carbon bubble. That's right. The further you get away from from reality, the bigger the shock is when the bubble bursts. Exactly. Yeah, the ULI writing is very, very good and actually informed a lot of the literature review in my dissertation, which led to this research. And they're they're doing really cutting edge thinking and work on this this problem, this this bubble which is developing. Uh, very, very good stuff. If anyone listening to this isn't aware of the ULI research on this issue that's very much worth reading and having a look at. And I think part of the benefit of that ULI sea change project, as it's called, is that it's brought investors together to discuss how they should be reflecting these risks. And although it's difficult for competitors, essentially in the market, to come together and be open about some of their secrets, I suppose, of how they how they assess risk, it has kind of opened that up 
that discussion of sustainability and risk between investors. And they are genuinely coming together and thinking about the best ways of reflecting this. And the hope is that if those conversations continue, as we hope they do, and obviously we as journal are as heavily involved as we can be to try and help that along, that the the lack of consensus that you might argue is, is shown in some of your results, Josh, will fade away as, as we find a sort of market consensus on what we should be doing as an industry and the best ways of adjusting cash flow to reflect this risk. And one more consistency we have on that from the market, the easier it is for the valuer to reflect that confidently. I agree. I agree. So uh, what we see here is a direction of travel. So there is some consensus around how the, how you would reflect these risks or uh, these premiums. But the fact remains from the research, the result shows that there is a significant part of the market, probably the most sophisticated part of the market, are reflecting these premiums and, and risks. So However we do it, we need to take that seriously and we need to try and find a way of reflecting sustainability in our, our valuations uh, more explicitly. We can see the direction of travel. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this isn't a, a topic that, that we're going to solve necessarily uh, no. over this podcast, but you know, more information like the research that you've done, Josh, is helping to build up that picture and that story of exactly. um, where things are going. So I think that's really helpful. I think we're coming up to time. Yeah. So Josh, I wanted to ask if you have maybe one takeaway that if listeners were to remember anything from this podcast today, you'd you'd like that to be front of mind. I think really in a nutshell, what the, the research indicates is that sophisticated purchasers are already making these adjustments. And therefore it follows that the valuation industry needs to take this more seriously and start to find ways to reflect these premiums and discounts, particularly transition risk discounts, more seriously in their valuations. I think that is the the message that sophisticated purchasers are already making these adjustments. It's already happening in the market. That's great. Thank you. And I think just to add to that, the way that we do that is probably through collaboration with clients and also amongst Valuers, we have organizations that try and bring us together. We're all speaking under various working groups, whether that's through ULI, whether that's through RICS, et cetera. And this is a topic that we probably need to collaborate on in order to find the answer. So let's keep that conversation going. But thanks um, so much, Josh, for joining me and, and talking me through your really interesting research. I know we're, we're also publishing an infographic of some of your most interesting results which I'd encourage everyone to read. And of course, to listeners, if you need advice on the impact of sustainability on the value or risk of your portfolio or a more formal valuation from a team that really understands what's happening in the market, then please don't hesitate to contact myself. We're more than happy to help. But thanks, Josh, again, have a great day. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Emily. It was good to chat.